mic'd this morning. Just uh, at the end of last month in May, you hosted our presbytery, 44 congregations, eight new worshiping communities right here in the sanctuary and in your fellowship hall. And so we're grateful for that, that uh, we're in relationship with each other as this wider family of faith. And so I'm so happy to be able to be here. Our pastors have had a tough go of it the last couple of years. I mean, just to move to online worship and to do all the things they knew, just to keep their flock together is a real challenge. So I'm so happy that Jason and his family are able to get away this morning. I'm one of those people who likes to celebrate Pentecost more than just on the day of Pentecost. So this is the third Sunday, even though we have green in our ordinary time, we have this third Sunday and, and the Holy Spirit continues to be at work among us. And so I'm going to be reading from a text this morning that comes from the very end of chapter 3 of the book of Acts, from the very end of it, and just so that you know where this fits in in this story, I'll do my best to put some other scriptures on the screen for you so you can follow along. But listen to God's word to us this morning. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you from your own people a prophet like me. You must listen to whatever he tells you. And all the prophets, as many as have spoken from Samuel and those after him, also predicted these days, you are the descendants of the prophets and of the covenant that God gave to your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and in your descendants all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you, to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Let's bow in prayer together. O oh God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow, be our teacher. Thank you for preserving stories of faith from long ago that inform our faith today and remind us to whom we belong. Give us your spirit today so that we might present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't want to block any songs here or hymns, but uh, someone will need to remind me to get my Bible when we're done. So this day just a few Sundays ago, this Pentecost day, this Holy Spirit falls on the disciples and it comes to a house where they're gathered and it comes in such a dramatic way that it makes this very loud sound like a violent rushing wind that text tells us. And then it fills the house and apparently this noise is so loud that crowds start to gather. They say, what is that noise? What is going on here? And then they hear something else. We all know how good it feels if we're traveling to another country and we come back and we get to hear English again. Or if you're, or if you're here as an immigrant, we have eight new worshiping communities. All of them preach and worship in a language other than English, including Arabic. 
and Swahili in our presbytery. And so that they can worship in their mother tongue is a beautiful thing. And here are these Israelites, the text calls them, are gathered from all over the Mediterranean world. I count 13 of them. And there they hear this amazing sound, but they also hear God's deeds of power in their own language. And it says they were all amazed and perplexed. Well, I'd be amazed and perplexed if that happened with me. But the amazing thing is not that the disciples suddenly become multilingual, which would be really amazing and very cool, especially living here. It's the actual content of their message. And so we find in Acts chapter 2, all the disciples were proclaiming not just this thing in another language, they were proclaiming God's deeds of power. And then Peter, this impetuous leader who I'm sure you've been introduced to at some point, he stands up and he preaches the first sermon he's preached as part of these events of Pentecost. Of course, they get accused of something. They get accused of being drunk very early in the morning. They're all witnessing there. And what's fascinating about this is that they're witnessing to Israel's scriptures, to prophets, and the power of of God's Messiah, we're going to come back to that word again. To do what? To make all things new under heaven and earth. And so Peter finally wraps up things in his message. He says, this Jesus, God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. A witness is someone who sees something and then accurately describes it. They usually don't show up to a courtroom drunk. (laughs) They take an oath on the Bible to say something that they saw or they heard or something that they know to be the case. That's what good witnesses do. And here Peter is saying that we are these witnesses to what we've seen in this one. And so there's this defining moment in this nascent community, and yet it's only the first of many moments when the disciples have an opportunity to stand and deliver. Before Jesus ascended to heaven, he promised them, you will receive the power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so this day of Pentecost is only act one, scene one, of a world-changing movement that extends throughout time and reaches to the ends of the earth. And so it begins with Peter's first sermon, and it ends with 3,000 people being initiated that day, being baptized that day, and the church scrambling as best it could to make a home for all these new people. And so the scene ends that day, all who believed were together and had all things in common, just like La Mirada has things in common with La Habra. I noticed that you go and you go on retreat together, you worship together, a sister church just up the road, hold all things in common. They would go so far that they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any who had need. And then it says this isn't something that happens every other month. 
Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts. This is not a miserly group of people. Whatever happened, it made them generous toward each other, and it made them notice the needs of others. And so when we move to Acts chapter 3, we see that this chapter begins a different movement in the life of this church, and it tells this amazing story of healing and restoration that happens to just one guy, just one person. And so it reveals another quality about the deeds and power of God. You see at the end of chapter 2 that I read, there's so much comfort in worshiping together, to hearing our our songs that kind of connect us back to God and It's life-saving to be in fellowship sometimes. It's certainly life-saving to the economically poor to have assets redistributed in times of need. But they were never meant to be the exclusive benefit of just the initiated. And so in chapter 3, we see this different moment in life. The church, it seems like the church catches its breath, no pun intended for those Greek students who know pneuma means breath or ruah. In Hebrew means breath. But it has a chance to catch its breath and after getting into this rhythm of prayers and fellowship and caring for the practical needs of its own members, the Spirit drives the church out into the world. As soon as that happens, to bless all the families of the earth. I noticed as I drove in today, right on your parking lot says uh, I suppose when you're headed out you're now entering the mission field who knows maybe it's there's another sign to see you're entering the mission field when you come in but I think it's when you go out you get this and so after all this amazing stuff happens here in Acts chapter 3 Peter and John go up to the temple at the hour of prayer they go to this place called the beautiful gate it's right on the outer edge of this temple and there's this man begging for alms He's been lame from birth. He hasn't walked since then. He's been begging. And someone came and put him there. And instead of Peter and John just doing what sometimes we might do is drop a few coins in a cup and and move on, they engage him. They look at him. The text says they look at him intently. And then they ask him to look back at them. You see, they just don't want to do something superficial and move on. He's a miraculous creation of God and faith travels a relational bridge. Faith is more caught than it's taught. And I think of all the times that Jesus went to people's homes and shared meals with them, all the hours he spent in conversations with them. What a great listener he was. Probably no better listener in all of history And in fact, he listened so well and cared so deeply, he often knew people better than they knew themselves. And so I think of this woman who had five husbands, a Samaritan woman, and she's married, or she's not even married, to the sixth man she's living with. And Jesus has this long conversation, one of the longest we find in the New Testament. And he senses her deep, longing for significance and connection and so he very patiently gives her the living water of God's love 
brings her back to her creator. And then this leper who no one would touch because it would make them unclean. He doesn't even ask Jesus to heal him. He just says, Clen cleanse me, you know, ceremonial. You need to be ceremonial clean. And if you're pious, you didn't touch someone like this. And Jesus says, well, let me show you this. I'm going to touch you anyway. Be clean, but I'm going to touch you anyway because no one's untouchable to me. You think you might be, but you're not. And then of all the people to say, you're my disciple, follow me, goes to Levi, this tax collector. And certainly, if you were a good Jewish person that they, you didn't even have to be a rabbi to know this, you would never go to a tax collector's house for dinner. And he said, Levi, I'm going to show you that you're part of the covenant of God. You're part of the covenant people of God. And I'll, there's no way, better way for me to show you this than to hang out with you for dinner at your house and really hang out and spend some time. So over and over again, Jesus reaches beyond the conventions of his day to bring people into a deeper fullness than even they were seeking. And so here in this third chapter of Acts, we see Peter and John imitating their master because discipleship is more than just sitting before a professor. It's following a master into the world. So they imitate their master and they engage this beggar of alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. Well, this should tell us something about what discipleship, what following this Jesus is all about. You see, it's about him. It's about what Jesus does, what Jesus did, what Jesus calls us to do. It's all about him. And when Jesus says the Holy Spirit will empower you as my disciples, what does he call them to do? To draw attention to themselves? Does this Holy Spirit just make us better versions of ourselves? Does it help us live more successful lives? I tend to think that it does because it keeps us from doing a lot of things that are distracting and derailing and it keeps us in a, in a wholeness way of life. Or does it do like it did with Constantine at the Milvian Bridge in 312 AD? Empower us to colonize the civilized world. Remember that bit of history? With this cross, I shall conquer. To conquer others, to go in with power rather than service. So in chapter 3, when Peter takes hold of this man's hand and raises him up, and suddenly the man's feet and ankles are made strong, Peter just doesn't say, look at me, look what I've done. This is a great miracle. In the past life, probably in a New York second, Peter would have done that. But he says, no. This is the new way of life that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he addresses the crowd and says, you Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made this man walk? What a telling question. Peter's pointing away from himself to the real power to heal and make alive. And then he proclaims the God of Abraham, 
the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. You see, he's connecting Israel's past with Israel's present. The God of the past of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same God who is at work now through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the things that Jesus began to say and do in his earthly ministry are now being accomplished by anyone who will turn from the old way of life and put their trust in Jesus. That's the empowering work right there. Sins are forgiven. Lepers are cleansed. The lame walk. Jesus is who you have been waiting for all of these centuries. And now he's alive through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter argues in verse 16, faith in his name, his name itself, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And faith, that is, through Jesus, has given him this per perfect health in the presence of all of you. Let's ponder that name for a moment. The name Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, they all mean the same thing. God saved. This, this is the name that has made this man here strong. And earlier in the chapter, when the lame man asked Peter and John for alms, expecting to receive some money from them, he says, I have no silver or gold, but I'm going to give you what I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. This is what I have to offer. And Peter has been through enough failures in his own life to claim for himself that Jesus not only saves, but is also the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, the Christos in Greek, the Anointed One of God. You see, Jesus Christ is not uh, a first and a last name like Jason Coe or Pat Mosley or something. I probably just woke Pat up back there. It's not a first and the last name. It literally means anointed Savior. And so when a man is healed by the power of the living God, Peter doesn't miss this opportunity to preach about the anointed one. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's expectations for someone to save. And yet he's a very different savior. And yet nonetheless, he's a prophet, a priest, and a king. You know, we're so blessed to be in this wider community of faith. And we come from this long history of biblical scholars who poured over the scriptures and have articulated what we believe in every age. And we call one of our collections of writing the book of confessions. And each one of these confessions wrestles with the apostles' teachings and the scriptures and they listen for what God is saying right now in this age and then they, they say it and we've collected these. It's a family history, if you will, and it's guiding to us. And we're also blessed to live in a presbytery where we have so much talent. We have this amazing biblical scholar, David Berry, who teaches every Saturday morning. I've been attending all year long right now we're on a great catechism of the 16th century you say oh well that was from back then no, 
so much to learn about ourselves, so much to learn about God through talking through our faith together. And you're all invited, by the way. Uh, lots of people are coming in still, so you're invited. Just let me know, and we'll make sure you get an invitation for Saturday morning. And he's the pastor over at Norwalk Presbyterian Church. But I think of this great work, this Heidelberg Catechism, and it has such a personal tone to it. And we find this question and answer there. Why is Jesus called Christ, meaning anointed? And the answer is this, because he's been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed by the Holy Spirit to be our chief priest, our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. Well, that's a mouthful, I know, and it's kind of like drinking condensed milk. But, but the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism had 16 centuries to summarize what Peter preached in his second sermon of Pentecost. God raised up a prophet from the people of Israel, but he's not just any prophet. He's our, what does it say, chief prophet. There's other voices we listen to in life, but this is the chief voice we listen to. Moses may have been a great lawgiver and prophet, in his own accord and he may have spoke on behalf of God and was used by God in such a powerful way to deliver Israel from bondage in Egypt but Peter reminds us that even Moses foretold of a greater one to come Isaiah Jeremiah Ezekiel all great prophets and they showed Israel the way but in Jesus of Nazareth we find not only a prophet but a priest and a king as well. So that word uh, Mashiach or we call it Messiah is used for chiefly for the word of an anointing a king. And King Saul, uh, King David, they were the Lord's anointed, we called them. But in Jesus, we find a king of kings and Lord of lords who surpasses them all. And Peter in the sermon is pointing to that reality. I'm so blessed to have been born into a loving, supportive family. I don't say that to brag or to make anyone feel sad about their own family if they're struggling at this time. No family is perfect, believe me, and it takes a lot of teaching and communication and asking for forgiveness and then being forgiven. We even live with each other as sisters and brothers in one household. And yet, as families go, mine has always been a stronghold of my life, even to this day. And I think the main reason for that is that my parents modeled what it looked like to have a Christ-centered life, this chief prophet. Even during the darkest hours of the death of my brother when he was only three days old, or when finances got so rough in our household that we were gonna need to sell our house and move out, that's, that's a tall tale when you have six brothers and sisters you're going to have to move out and my parents they directed us to the faith of God it's just a roof over our head and walls there will be another roof some, someplace and then when things went well they would give the credit to God and give thanks to God and so there's hardly a moment when I think back to those days at breakfast and 
come upstairs, and my mom and dad would be praying together and reading this devotion that now, having gone to seminary, I think it's kind of weak in its theology. That's kind of my critical nature coming out. But they were, they were reading the scripture too, and they were praying together. So that happened probably on a daily, but there probably wasn't a month that went by where also we as a family didn't take part in some sort of service to others. Some of my most poignant memories as a child is being in the riverbed neighborhood of Tijuana on the street with my dad my mom and partnered with people down there to do some community building, community organizing, just to address the poverty that plagued their lives. And then as I grew older as a teenager, I realized how committed they were to the civil rights movements. I mean, they said anyone should be able to live in this neighborhood. It was a rather affluent neighborhood. And they said anybody of any race should be able to live in this neighborhood. And I remembered the death threats that came to them and also how people defiled the front of our house because my parents were public about that. And then in prison reform and public education in our town, always trying to work to better things. Why? Because they live christ centered lives. That's the only thing that I could figure out why. So as Peter concludes his sermon, inspired by a lame man's feeling at this beautiful gate of the temple, he reminds the crowd of Israelites that they too come from a noble heritage. Indeed, he calls them descendants of the prophets and of the covenant with Abraham, saying to them, and in your descendants, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And yet he's saying something more. As great as those prophets were, even as great as Moses was, they predicted, they predicted the coming of another who would far surpass them and of whom they should listen to above all. You see, in Jesus of Nazareth, all the teachings of the former prophets would come rushing together. The teachings about the temple where Israel would go to meet God, the teachings about Scripture, the teachings about repentance where Israel would recognize its sin before God, and the teachings about atonement where God would forgive their sins through God's own sacrificial life in this one person. So in the, me the meaning of word of Jesus is found in the fact that Jesus is doing what God called Abraham and his family to do in the first place. He comes to fulfill the promises of God. And here in the first few chapters of Acts, we see how we would do it. Twelve very puzzled men, and soon many women too, go out and discover when they do the things that Jesus did and point to Jesus as Jesus' witness and announce that he's the author of life. And when they pray for the power of the Holy Spirit, all sorts of beautiful things begin to happen. Communities are transformed. People are saved from dis destructive diseases and habits and love and generosity become the name of the game. But if you read further on in Acts, 
many will also feel threatened, mostly those who have power and privilege. They'll throw Peter and John in prison, even in the next chapter or two. And eventually they'll persecute the church for following the way of Christ. And even so, that community continues to grow, not only then, not only in that area, but throughout the world. So we belong to this one, this anointed one, this Jesus, and we're joined to Christ by faith. He becomes our chief prophet, and we listen to him to reveal the counsel and the secret will of God. As a Presbytery executive, as I began today, it's not lost on me how challenging these last couple years have been for our congregations, and especially for our elders and our ministers. It's been a tough few years, and there's been so many changes in our society, so even thinking through what the church should look like in the 21st century, and then we have all of this division, this rancor, and we have these tragedies, this uh, gun violence, even in our own presbytery. Earlier in May, we had a man come into one of our sanctuaries and shoot, shoot a person dead and a few more. And so we have gun violence. We have systemic racism that just plagues our relationships. And then you throw in just needing to wear masks and being careful about our health all the time. It's really tough. It's exhausting for this generation of the church. And we've had to let go of some of our perfectionism because some of us have had to learn to speak into a camera instead of to actual people and see them there before us. And so it makes a heavy load. And I believe it has driven us to our knees. And yet I think that maybe our knees are the best place to be because then we're more and more dependent on Christ and pointing to Jesus in our witness as the living Lord and author of our life. So I guess what I'm saying is if we get discouraged, we need to remember to be like Peter, at least this version 2.0 of Peter, a post-Pentecost Peter, who points away from himself the power of God to do amazing things and to make all things new. Because by faith in Christ, we too are descendants of Abraham. And we're descendants of the covenant. And we're charged by our own anointing of the Holy Spirit to bless all the families of the earth. Amen. Amen.